Is she not fit for an evil mouth? Did she not recite? Let me hurt her heart. Let me hit her mouth. Like your mouth. Like your vulva. The silver pieces that are therein, you do not return what you have taken. Let me answer your double tongue with a double answer. Let me add a second message to you. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in West Asia. I'm your host, Alex, and these are my guests. Lily. Annika. And today, we're listening to the dialogue between two women. So this kind of debate text is a common Sumerian genre. It first shows up at Farah Abu Salabik, which is where we're headed today. We've looked at several of these literary debates already. Bird versus fish, copper versus silver, sheep versus grain, and so on. In this genre, two parties talk themselves up and try to denigrate each other. In this case, both are housewives trying to embody the ideal role of women and accuse the other of failing to live up to that role. And they're doing this by quoting proverbs that refer to the other person's flaws. So this text incorporates many of the same proverbs from the instructions of Shurupak that we looked at two episodes ago. So these are probably proverbs in the living Sumerian oral tradition at the time. This debate format probably also originated in the oral tradition. That's the thing is that there are large parts of it that we can't understand for many different reasons. Is there like parts of the tablets that's missing or something? Well, it's, yes, there's, there's that. And there's the fact that like, hey, it's a text written by male scribes about two women having like a cat fight, essentially. There's like, yeah. women be like, you know, they're always fighting, am I right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like your mouth, like your vulva. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, it's like, both are rabbinous eaters. Yeah. Oh. Um, no, it's like, yeah, both are just like, oh, you can't control your appetite. Oh, okay, um, okay, okay, that makes sense. That makes but, sense. and then we don't know when each character starts and stops talking. Mm-hmm. So I've just arbitrarily just like divided them each couple of lines up. We don't know when they're quoting a proverb verbatim for its face value meaning or when they're quoting it sarcastically, like attributing that meaning to the person they're mocking. Mm. And also, we don't know what many of these proverbs actually mean. Because, like, there, there's this poetic tradition that exists in, like, Iraq, basically, and mm-hmm. exists into modern Arabic culture. of like a poetic dispute between two, uh, you know, two people trying to insult each other. Yeah, this track. Yeah. No, exactly. And there's, the, the like, the African-American one. And there's, like, the, the Viking flighting Oh, um, same thing? Yeah, same thing. It's like a poetic insults that are like clever and, uh, you know, witty. Yeah, um, okay. No. Yeah. Rap battle, yeah. It's a universal human impulse to put each other down in a clever way. That's, I love that. <laughs> right. She changes her eyes. She lies five times. That which is over there, she brings hither. That which is here, she brings over there. She spills oil. She spills milk. What does that which she's over there, she bring, what does that mean? I don't know. I mean, it might be just like, you know, she's making irrelevant trips or she's like, she keeps changing your mind or something like that. I mean, I assumed it was something like that, but I just, I love the way it's phrased. Her double tongue. Let me answer with a double answer. She is the fear of the barbers, characterized by her womb, a widow's ass. I do like that she is the fear of the barbers. So she's so hairy? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let me eat splendidly. Let me sit splendidly. A fool is a fool. A bird playing with the snake, two hearts, two minds, two men plow field with two minds. A soldier is bound to a dog. He gets grass for flour. Food supply is a field. To possess something is to live in a palace. Haste is chaff. I think the to possess something and to live in a palace is just, that's an interesting one. Putting a lot of mm-hmm. emphasis on like ownership. That's the interesting thing is because there's also a couple of sayings in the Sumerian Proverbs that... You know, we are chained to our possessions. You know, basically the more more money, more problems, essentially. The treacherous man is in constant pursuit of vulvas. 
He who does not support a wife, he who does not support a child, the evil state of things is doubly evil for him. He grinds flour. He has no rushes to sleep on. He is not reckoned among people. <laughs> what does he grind flour mean? Well, it's like, you know, if he doesn't support a wife, then he doesn't have a wife to grind flour for him. Oh, okay, okay. That makes sense. Like, I don't know, because, like, modern, like, feminism would be, like, he's a bad guy because he's, like... She well, has a wife. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But she's there, like, he... The fact that he doesn't wife have a wife makes him the bad guy. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, who is she talking about? That's that's the other thing. It's, like, here she's talking shit on some guy, maybe comparing the woman, the one she's talking to, to this guy. Mm-hmm. Or, like, this is your lover, like, complete your man kind of situation. Mm, I see, I see. So, I don't know. It's worth reiterating, this text is written by men. So when these women mock a fictional man for not having a wife to do all this household work for him, that may or may not have reflected how women actually felt. So even when they're writing about women, these scribes writing on this text are primarily occupied with men's reputations. The liar bites his fingernails. He is a man eating alone. Rushes are deceptive. They do not satisfy hunger. I think the liar bites his fingernails thing, like that could be like, oh, everybody has a tell. I, I, I don't know. I like the pairing it with he is a man eating alone. Yeah. Which I wonder if it's a, you know, kind of a proverbial, like, you know, the liar is going to piss everyone off and not, won't have any friends so that he will be eating alone. And because he's eating alone, the only thing I'll have to eat is his fingernails. Oh, yeah, that's good. When you wipe out grass, it sprouts again. The ox feeding on grass will be an ox tied to the yoke. A dog is bound to the threshold. A dog does not strap sandals on its feet. A treacherous woman bows her neck. She is ridiculous. The left hand makes dogs multiply. That has some sort of lewd connotations, I'm sure. Maybe. It's kind of, you know, similar sentiment to like pearls before swine, because definitely dogs are associated with being unclean and not in control of their baser impulses and so on. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Mm. And I mean, I don't know if it goes back this far, but like uh, a left hands being considered like the bad hand. Is that a thing? Maybe. I don't know. But I mean, I would not be surprised. I mean, I'm a lefty, so that's something I think about. <laughs> Whenever I see a mention of a left hand, I'm very conscious of, like, what context are they talking about it? For him who lies, hatred is directed against him. Wrath causes destruction for you. Oh, God. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Okay, okay. Crotch and flaccid penis. Flaccid penis and mouth. The mean ones are so much more fun to say. Right. Locusts do not destroy our lives. He who sits on potsherds crushes potsherds. A sleeping slave neglects things. A girl spends the day idle. So it's probably fair to say there are a few things this text is preoccupied with. Property, sex, food, and various types of women like housewives, daughters, and slave girls. Obviously, these are not unrelated concepts. The process by which daughters become housewives involves a ceremony formalizing sex and the transfer of property. The goal of housewives is in part to make more daughters. And slave girls themselves are property, luckily thought of in sexual terms by their male owners. More relevantly, the role of a wealthy housewife would be supervision over domestic production. So, you know, in every household, someone would need to do the hard work of grinding grain and spinning and weaving and so on. This would be done by the women of the household. Of course, if they were rich enough to afford slaves, then the slaves would do it. And of course, the richer the household, the less work the housewife would do. So we can understand the tension between the housewife and the slave girl. You know, every pleasure that the housewife enjoys is provided by the slave girl. The housewife is symbolically responsible for serving the food cooked by the slave. The housewife owns all the property, but slaves, of course, do all the necessary work. And of course, it's not guaranteed that her husband won't sleep with the slaves. A cargo boat that has the wind comes with the wind. It approaches with fire, with dust. Locusts destroy houses. Let me weave its wool. A lie multiplies seven times. 
A woman without fists is a woman without wages. A splitting voice is a man's horror. I really like the woman without fists is a woman without wages. Right. I mean, I don't know what it's like. I imagine it probably has something to do with like work, but the word, the yeah. use of the word fists makes me think of fighting. That, yeah, because I, I, thinking about it, probably what it's referring to is some aspect of spinning the wool where you have a fist full of, like, uh, unspun wool in one hand or something like that. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, a woman without fists is a woman without wages. If you can't, like, you have to beat your boss up to make him no, no, pay exactly. you. you have slap to, like, slap yeah. him around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. One fist of iron, the other of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will. Food enters the mouth. The hips of a daughter, wandering around, are without a seal. A slave girl is a man's property. A malicious ox does not build a house. I don't know, like, I want to do, like, some weird, like, accent. I feel like it would make it better, <laughs> but it's, like, that's probably, no matter what I choose, it would be offensive. Right? Like, <laughs> I feel like, if it, like, this is, like, a French accent would be really funny for some reason. Ips of a daughter. The ips of a daughter. You don't often get that, like, what? No, no, I was going to say, you don't often get this like explicit of a connection in the text between just like, this is how we think about property and yeah. our cylinder ceiling practices and gender and sex. Oh, so, wow. Because okay, the hips that's... of the daughter wander around her without a seal. And then the next, a slave girl is a man's property. Yeah, 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 so yeah, like, yeah, hmm, yeah. How do you feel about all those things together? Yeah, interesting. Okay. So in this text, like I said, we see an explicit connection between quote unquote sealed goods passing from one elite to another. And one man giving his virgin daughter to another in marriage with, of course, the concept of a seal or, you know, a guarantee that no one else has touched this product being the operative concept there. And then right next to it, of course, we see the line, a slave girl is a man's property. Again, underlining the connection between property, sex, and the household. And of course, the next line is accusing a malicious ox or castrated animal, you know, a piece of property who cannot <laughs> reproduce of being unable to build a house. So clearly they're thinking deeply about this. Let the day pass. Let me build a house. The eye is a deep place. Is that like the eye is the window to the soul or something? Either that or just like something about daydreaming. Because like, oh, you know, let okay. the day pass, let me build a house. No, I mean, that makes sense. It's like, those are in quotations. So it's like somebody's saying that they're going to do all these things, but they're not. Right. Yeah, that's they're the interpretation of the it. translator. A gala singer in the early morning walks alone. He's there like it's sleeper bird. The gala singer was the male, you know, in quotes, male priest who sang women's laments. So there may be some kind of gender thing going on there, but mm. we don't you know. We don't know. Mm. He who drinks beer is a liar who digs holes. He does not leave the beer house. Taking care is deceptive. No idea what that last one means. Without bread, without travel provisions, there is no bread ration. A liar has no name. A malicious ox pursues malice. Let me speak. Let me deny. When you add many things, a thing is added. A pit is added. An eye is added. The broken heart, a heart that has no place, is a heart that has no place to bow down. A lonely heart. Is that in reference to like, when I when I hear bow down there, I think maybe like in worship, like in prayer. Maybe. That would make sense. A homeless heart is a heart without a temple. Yeah. To say it, let me give it, of a man's bread is easy. Bread to a man, when one has to give the bread, it is far away. Possessions are good. Because uh, there are a lot of other proverbs from the same like time and place mm-hmm. that are just like, possessions tie you down. It's like, mm. uh, more money, more problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wonder if this is like, you know, you think possessions are good or whatever. Oh, okay. Like, possessions are good. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thing. Okay, okay. Because we don't, because there are no quotation marks in the original text. Mm-hmm. You know, that's only the 
translator's interpretation of oh. what is being quoted versus what is being said. That makes sense. Value. Yeah, okay, that makes sense, yeah. The tongue does not touch the word. Speaking many words, the tongue wanders about. When you judge your people, your judgment is set aside. The boat is sinking. A man who has much property. Five mouths is his name. Nothing compares with it. The harsh mouth. The rich guy eats enough for five guys. Oh, okay. I, I was going back with like the vulva, five vulvas, five mistresses. I don't know how far that comparison goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if the mouth here is referring to eating or like yelling. Oh, uh, or just like talking, like the harsh talk mouth. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but okay. I, yeah, I would not be surprised if it was like, he eats enough for five people and he's constantly yelling. Mm, so, okay. Who knows? That one to me sounds just like, you know, if you're an idiot and you talk a lot, people know it. But if you're an idiot and you keep quiet, nobody does. Right. A girl drops the wool. A woman drops the seeds. A girl's crotch is a dog eating rushes. Girl, let me enter your chamber. Let me spend my time splendidly. His eyes sleep. He who carries firewood should not bake bread from water. So the line, a girl's crotch is a dog eating rushes, is interesting. I already mentioned elsewhere that a vagina is compared to a mouth, letting in what it shouldn't. And then in Sumerian literature, dogs are unclean creatures ruled by their appetites. And rushes are plants that you pile up to sleep on. So earlier it had the line, rushes don't satisfy hunger, in the section about the lonely guy biting his nails. So eating rushes may be symbolic of destroying your own home. You know, it fills your belly, but it doesn't satisfy your hunger. And ultimately it makes your life worse. So that may be all of the parts going into this line. You know, the girl who fucks too much is like a dog eating your bed. Come, child of a slave girl, let me feed you. Let me feed you. A forsaken slave girl's child receives beer. A slave girl's coarse bread and milk is a slave girl's property. A girl's lap opens. Shade is cast on the watching girl. A girl risks losing her property on a foreign road. A girl does not return to our house. I took that one to mean like a girl goes out, gets laid, comes back. She's a woman now, not a girl. Mm, that makes sense. I don't know. Because I mean, a girl risks losing her property. I don't know. I interpreted property there to be virginity or something. I don't know. Right. I mean, that's that's probably one aspect of it. And probably another aspect of it is the fact that if you're not a virgin, it's going to mess up the whole dowry system. Right. My house weaves my cloth. The house of a head is a headmaster. A jar of beer mash is a contest with the Lord. I should point out, for the record, that head is apparently a pun on slave, and headmaster is apparently a pun on administrator. So, I've mentioned Abu Salabik a couple times. The name might stand out to you. It's not one of the more famous Sumerian cities. In fact, the name isn't Sumerian at all. It's the modern Arabic name of a mid-sized city whose ancient name we can't be sure about. We're in the north-central alluvium, the first major city downriver of Kish. Just downriver from us is the temple city of Nippur, home of the god Enlil, and after that is Shurupak. In other words, we're near the halfway point between the Sumerian-speaking southern delta and the Akkadian-speaking northern floodplains. As we'll see today, Abu Salabik had a mixed population. Although we can't know about the entire population, a large percentage of scribes had Semitic names. And as I mentioned last episode, Abu Salabik was almost certainly part of the kingdom of Kish at some point. We're still in the Fara period, or the 2500s BCE. The same period as the text from Shurpak, which you looked at two episodes ago, but probably a couple decades later. We're going to look at the text from the site, some of which belong to the Kish tradition that we talked about last episode, as well as the palace and the question of the city's ancient name. So Abu Salabik was founded by the early 3000s BCE, or the beginning of the Uruk period. Its size peaked during the middle Uruk period, around 10 hectares. A branch of the Euphrates probably flowed through the middle of town at this point, just west of the main mound, connecting Abu Salabik directly with some of the most important cities in the alluvium, namely Kish, Nippur, and Unug. This ancient city was already centered around a temple platform, 
42 meters long, with several buildings on top, including an administrative complex with evidence of kitchens and pottery workshops, among other crafts. However, at some point during the transition from the Jemdet Nasser to the early dynastic period, this fourth millennium mound was abandoned. At the same time, a minor settlement a few hundred meters to the north exploded in size. Nearby, secondary occupation moved from a mound in the northwest of the site to one in the northeast. That is, over the course of a century or two, they moved the entire city to an entirely different configuration in the same general area. They kept using the fourth millennium mound as a garbage dump, but we don't have any evidence of new buildings or new economic activity after the reorganization. So it's worth asking, why did they move the city? The most simple explanation is the river changed course. Since the city relied on the river for sustenance, travel, and irrigation, they may have moved the city for entirely utilitarian reasons. However, the uniquely thorough abandonment of the old city, except specifically as a trash heap, may indicate some kind of symbolic break from the past. This break coincides with the change in pottery styles, which frequently indicates that some time passed between the two occupations. However, in this case, it might also be explained by major population turnover or shifting trade routes associated with the beginning of the early dynastic period. Around the same time, around 2900 BCE, the residents of this new city divided its residential area into sections with a series of massive walls. In addition to the labor involved in the initial construction of these walls, we also have evidence that they underwent continuous maintenance, suggesting that they served an ongoing purpose instead of just being built for one war, for example. This purpose isn't necessarily defensive, since similar intramural walls appear at other alluvial cities during the early dynastic, including at Lagash, Tutub, and Al-Ubayd. Also, as I mentioned, a new wall was built at Unug around this time as well. We found seven graves from this earliest period of the early dynastic, between 2900 and 2700 BCE or so. At least four are buried under houses, two are buried with beads, and two with pottery. One grave on the main mound belongs to a child between seven and ten. Amid multiple layers of reeds and smashed pottery, the grave also contains pottery full of fish, or at least fish bones. Evidence of burning on the surface above the grave might reflect some aspect of funerary ritual. Moving forward to the 2600s BCE, or the quote-unquote early dynastic two period, we find 21 people, mostly adults, buried in 11 graves, and two children in one grave. We also find one mass burial of between 12 and 14 people, including at least nine adults of both sexes and three children. Most graves have vessels of pottery or stone, possibly left over from funeral feasts. The pottery may have also been intended to allow the deceased to fulfill their obligations in the afterlife, whether that meant dining or making offerings or both. Less common, read Susan Pollock in a 2015 article, are, quote, cosmetic shells with pigment, items of copper, earrings, arrowheads, and tools, silver rings, a sandstone slab, as well as animal bones, end quote. Personal adornment is rare, with no beads found in the subtle. So by the far period, that is the 2500s BCE, the period we're looking at today, Abu Salabik had grown to at least 25 hectares, with a population of a few thousand people. This includes a newly occupied mound to the south, but it may not take into account the extent of the lower town, so the town may have been even larger than 25 hectares. We've recovered almost 550 texts from the far period at Abu Salabik, Almost everywhere else, administrative records make up the vast majority of cuneiform tablets. This shouldn't surprise us, since writing was invented by administrative bureaucracies for their own organizational needs. However, at Abu Salabik, only about 60 of these texts, or 11%, are administrative in nature. Instead, the majority are literary or lexical texts, that is, produced to preserve cultural knowledge or a legendary tradition, rather than merely data points for bureaucratic records. The scribes who produced these texts may have worked for the local temple of the god Shara, later considered the son of Inanna. Or at the very least, these texts record land disbursements made by this temple. These administrative texts refer to basically every major city in southern Mesopotamia. In the far south, we see Ur, Unug, Eridu, and Larsa. In the southeast, we see Lagash, Girsu, Uma, and Zabalam. In the central alluvium, we see Nippur, Adab, and Isin. And in the north, we see Kish, Sippar, and Kutha. We also see the name Eresh, on which more later. And the name Engigi, which is either a city called Enegi, with Ki serving as a place name determinative, determinative or an alternate spelling of Ki-En-Gi, or the Land of the Noble Lords, 
the Sumerian name for Sumer, and possibly the name of the so-called City League. So in cuneiform writing from this period, we see a handful of advancements that make the system a more precise representation of spoken language. I mentioned that the archaic texts from Ur are the first to write out Sumerian words phonetically, rather than merely representing concepts with pictures or symbols. However, since many syllables to both began and ended with consonants were written with signs which represented one consonant and one vowel, the same sound could refer to multiple different syllables. For example, the sign representing the sound ba could be used to indicate syllables pronounced ba, bab, or ban. Likewise, the sound for mu could also stand for moon. In other words, if the syllable ended with a consonant, that final consonant was not likely to be represented in cuneiform from earlier periods. However, scribes at Farah Abu Salabik refined this process by adding a second sign to clarify how the end of the syllable was pronounced. For example, the Sumerian phrase, he said, is pronounced bin du. Before this innovation, these two syllables would be written with two signs, the sign for b to represent the sound bin, and the sign for du, so that before the fire period, the phrase bin du would be written with signs, which would be pronounced bi du. Now, however, scribes could specify every sound in this word by writing the first syllable, bin, with two signs, one for b and one for in, so that the entire phrase was now written with three signs, bi, in, du, to represent the sounds bin, du. Likewise, with the term susig, meaning a leather worker, before it was written with two signs, su and si, and afterwards with three, su, si, ig, to represent the sound susig. Another innovation is the consistent use of a monthly calendar. Whereas only one text from Purepak referred to the concept of a month, month names appear regularly on text from Abu Salabik. This appears to be a Semitic contribution to Mesopotamia's metrological tradition, since the names of the months themselves are Semitic. Similar month names appear in the alluvial cities of Adab and Girsu, and in the northern cities of Mari and Ebla. Likewise, some texts recording economic transactions use Semitic numbers. That is, instead of using the Sumerian sexagesimal or base 60 number system, they write out the Semitic words for large numbers in a decimal or base 10 system. For example, they use the word mi'at for 100 and lim for 1,000. This practice also appears at Mari and Ebla, which were both connected to the Kish tradition, which we talked about last episode. Speaking of which, I mentioned that none of the names attested in archaic Ur appeared to be from a Semitic language, and that only about 3% of names at Shurpak were Semitic. Looking at the names of scribes listed on texts at Abu Salabik, on the other hand, somewhere between 40 and 50% of names have a Semitic etymology, over 10 times as many as at nearby Shurpak during the same time period. Some of these scribes have the same Semitic names as scribes at Shurpak, such as Ishlul-il and Ena-il. The latter also shares a name with the king of Kish who campaigned in Elam, which we mentioned last time. The name Ilum Malik uses two extremely common Semitic words, meaning God is king. This linguistic discrepancy may be a geographical phenomenon, since Ur is in the far south, Shurpak in the south-central alluvium, and Abu Salabik in the north-central alluvium. Combined with the calendrical evidence, along with the literary connection to other northern cities in the Kish tradition, it's likely that Semitic culture exerted a stronger force on Abu Salabik than on the southern cities. In fact, that half the scribes have names in the local language is unremarkable. It speaks more to the position of the Sumerian language that at least half the scribes at Abu Salabik have names in a non-local language. We can't know what language these scribes spoke at home, or in the market, or in the temple, or whether these were all the same language or not. All we know, besides their names, is that at work they wrote text in both Sumerian and Akkadian, and that they were educated in both scribal traditions. Notably, whereas about half the scribes at Abu Salabik had Sumerian names, 80% of them preparing administrative documents had Sumerian names. This doesn't necessarily mean that quote-unquote ethnic Sumerians were disproportionately represented in leadership positions, although it might. People could go by a Sumerian name for any number of reasons besides being born to two parents who spoke Sumerian as a first language, for all the same reasons we can imagine modern immigrants to the U.S. giving their child a quote-unquote American name, or immigrants of an earlier era choosing or being forced to adopt a more Anglo-sounding surname. More relevantly, scribes with Semitic names who found themselves promoted to senior positions may have chosen to represent themselves in official text with chosen Sumerian names, especially if Sumerians took the lead in developing proto-cuneiform during the Uruk period, as many academics assume, they might have felt like a Sumerian name conferred some sort of specifically scribal legitimacy. 
As I mentioned, Abu Salabik is unique in that its administrative texts are outnumbered by literary and lexical texts. It shares with Shurpak the honor of providing history's first known literature, including poetry, fictional narratives, and wisdom literature. Despite the advancements in phonetic writing that I mentioned, these texts don't tend to conform to the grammar of spoken language. Words aren't necessarily written in the order they would be spoken, and some nouns and verbs are excluded. If the scribes thought, it would be easy to guess which words are being left out. Since this literature necessarily dealt with the mythological past, much of it began with a formulaic introduction that would characterize Mesopotamian stories for centuries, their own version of R, Once Upon a Time. Specifically, these legendary stories often began with the lines, On a faraway day, indeed, on a faraway day. On a faraway night, indeed, on a faraway night. In a faraway time, indeed, in a faraway time. We started last episode with the Hymn to Shamash. I mentioned that this hymn to the Semitic sun god was likely one of the first literary texts ever written in the Akkadian language, possibly first composed at Kish. As with the early Sumerian literature, it's hard to decipher, partially because the language had only been recently adapted to writing poetry, partially because scribes didn't represent every aspect of spoken grammar, including every word, and partially because writing conventions changed between the fire period and later instances of Akkadian writing. So a certain word or phrase might have been written one way during the fire period and then a different way in text that we can actually understand. Also last episode, I mentioned the Zami Temple Hymn to the Temple of Zababa in Kish. This collection of hymns, which appears only at Abu Salabik, has been interpreted as a literary collection of hymns to temples within the early dynastic kingdom of Unug, or possibly within the City League. Much as the list of geographic names, which is also found at Abu Salabik, apparently lists cities within the kingdom of Kish. Each of these temple hymns, but one, ends with the Sumerian word Zami, meaning praise. Unlike other far literary texts, this one did not enter the canon, in other words, it was not preserved by later scribes. Despite its possible origins in earlier Unug, it only appears, like I said, at Abu Salabik. The last hymn in this collection is dedicated to the goddess Ama Lisi, who appears in lexical lists of gods at both Abu Salabik and Shurpak. In the former, she's listed right after Gilgamesh. As I mentioned several episodes back, Ama Lisi was the patron god of a place called Gishgi, which some have suggested as a possible name for the city of Abu Salabik. Her shrine was called Gigi, which not only means cane break, but is literally cognate with the English words cane and canal which ultimately derived from the Sumerian word gi or gin, meaning cane. A later god list from Adab describes Lisi as another name for the mother goddess, Nenhursang. Notably, Nenhursang is the only goddess not praised in the Zami temple hymns. In other words, her temple is the only one that does not end with the Sumerian word praise. Of 69 deities named in these temple hymns, 42 also appear in the lexical god list from Abu Salabik, and 27 also appear in the list from Shurpak. Of names with an identifiable gender, this was apparently split half and half, with 31 male gods and 27 female goddesses. Among these goddesses, this text includes a hymn to the temple of Nisaba in the city of Eresh, which is another candidate for the ancient name of Abu Salabik. Speaking of lexical texts, these are essentially a list of words in a certain category. For example, back in the Uruk period, we talked about a list of metals and a list of livestock. We've spent a fair amount of time on the different versions of the list of professions, or the Lu'e list, which listed job titles of temple officials as far back as the late Uruk period. At Shurpak, however, we saw the first lexical lists of gods' names, as I just mentioned, and we have more here at Abu Salabik. The texts themselves are different, but many of the same gods, like I said, appear on both. The gods tend to appear in married pairs. Both texts begin with Enki and his wife Ninki. Both include Inanna and her husband Dumuzi, as well as Enlil, the god of kingship and the patron god of Nippur, and his wife Ninlil, although her name appears with a non-standard spelling. Other familiar Sumerian gods from these lists include Utu, the Sumerian sun god, counterpart to the Semitic sun god Shamash, to whom the hymn to Shamash was written. Anzu, the legendary creature from the Lugalbanda story, whose name is written with the determinatives for both god and bird, and is often depicted as a kind of griffin or a lion with eagle's wings who causes thunder by roaring. We also see Sud, another name for Enlil's wife, Ninlil, and Inanna's son, Shara, who I mentioned. Also present is Nisaba, patron goddess of scribes and the city of Eresh, again more on that later. The list also includes some Semitic gods, 
I mentioned that Il and Ilum, which appear in several personal names at Abu Salabik, come from the Akkadian word for God. The same Semitic word also produced the Hebrew El and Elohim and Arabic Allah as the proper name of a particular God. It appears to be more prevalent in West Semitic languages like Amorite than in East Semitic languages like Akkadian. Ishtaran, who may or may not be related to Ishtar, or Inanna, was the patron god of the city of Der, halfway between the Alluvium and the Zagros Mountains. And the god named E may be an early occurrence of Ea, the Akkadian god whom later generations would identify with the Sumerian wisdom god Enki. So some texts for Abu Salabik reflect the same Sumerian scribal tradition that we've been following since the Uruk-4 period. Although we only have a few large collections of texts spread out over a half millennium, Uruk-4, Uruk-3, Jimdat Nasser, Archaic Ur, and now the Fari texts, the lexical texts show remarkable continuity and literate education throughout this time period. Additionally, Abu Salabik also produced several texts unknown from later periods at Ur or Unug. These texts, some of which also appear at Ebla in northwestern Syria, about 200 years later, belong to a separate literary tradition, apparently centered on early dynastic Kish and possibly standardized by scribes at Kish. We talked about this Kish tradition last episode. Here and at Ebla, these northern texts always appear alongside the earlier southern texts, constituting an additional local layer on top of a shared region-wide tradition. So in other words, these northern texts don't replace the Sumerian texts, they just add to them. At first, these Kish tradition texts appear to be written in Sumerian. After all, the cuneiform writing system was probably created to represent Sumerian. And at this stage, in this development, these scribes represented all nouns and verbs with Sumerian logograms. That is, with each word represented by a specific sign, instead of using signs to represent the sounds of the language. Only prepositions and other secondary parts of speech were written phonetically in Akkadian, or the local East Semitic language. Because these scribes didn't represent spoken language exactly, we can't be sure exactly how to read these texts. Were they written and meant to be read entirely in Akkadian? That is, did the word signs stand for words in their own language, so that together with the Akkadian linking words written phonetically, the text on the tablet represented complete sentences in the Akkadian language? Or did the Sumerian word signs stand for Sumerian words? In other words, were they borrowing technical administrative vocabulary from Sumerian administrators, but incorporating them into their native grammar? Some evidence indicates that they may have been written in Akkadian. For example, they used the Akkadian word sibutum to refer to a witness, rather than the Sumerian word lu-ki-inima, and the Akkadian word for a statue, tsalmu, rather than its Sumerian counterpart, Alan. So to look at some of these lexical lists, the text Early Dynastic Lu-I, which descends from the late Uruk Lu-A list, is a list of titles and professions, with six copies found at Abu Salabik and others at Shurpak and Ebla. Unlike the earlier Uruk period list, this version of the list includes updated vocabulary, better suited to the 26th century BCE than the 32nd. For example, the archaic list didn't include terms like Ensi, ruler, Dubsar, or scribe, and Nubanda, or overseer, all of which were obviously necessary words for scribes in the Fara period. There is some overlap in vocabulary between the Uruk and the Fara versions of the text, but they obviously serve different purposes at this point. The Fara Lu'i list is practical, teaching scribes how to write the words they were likely to encounter in their career. On the other hand, the point of the Lu'a list is its old age. Fara scribes still studied these archaic texts, even if some, like the tribute list, were illegible even to them by that point. We can't be sure exactly why, but it's not hard to imagine that these earlier texts carried some kind of cultural weight as the first known written texts. So the titles in this list are not listed hierarchically. You might remember that a lot of the discussion around the Uruk Lu'e list revolved around the fact that it began with the title Nam Esh Da, which plausibly might have been the title of a leading office at the time. It was evidenced that the title Nam Esh Da continued to be used into the archaic period. But we're certain that this Lu'e list is not sorted by descending order of importance. It begins with scribes and scholars, then list a ceremonial role of cupbearer, and only then a high-level administrator with a high-level institutional office. The term ensi, reserved for kings and governors elsewhere in the Alluvium, is nowhere near the beginning of the list, even if the ensi of Abu Salabik was likely one of the most powerful men alive in the city at the time. Instead, the list is arranged thematically. For example, the word for scribe may come near the beginning because scribes were likely to use that word often. 
The generic word for peddler is paired with the terms for peddlers of salt, soapwort, and coal, the cosmetic. Not because one outranked the other, but because there were similar words that scribes were likely to use during their careers, and it made sense to group them together. Likewise, the text groups midwives with widows and orphans, pairing providers of reproductive care with people who needed institutional help with reproductive care. The Lu E list also bears on the question of language. Like I said, the first four entries, Dubsar, Umbisang, Sagi, and Shabra, which are the Sumerian words for scribe, scholar, cupbearer, and administrator, at first appears to confirm that these scribes were writing Sumerian words to participate in a Sumerian scribal tradition, but although all of these words have a Sumerian etymology, they had all been borrowed into the Akkadian language by the time of the Sargonic kings, after 2300 BCE or so. In other words, by the 2200s, Dubsar was the word for scribe, not just in Sumerian, but in both languages. Just as many modern job titles originated in Latin or French, but are now considered unremarkable English words. If a similar process had taken place by the 26th century BCE, we would expect Akkadian-speaking scribes to consider these perfectly normal Akkadian words. The Names and Professions list, another lexical text from the Kish tradition, is also attested at Ebla. It consists of a series of statements in the form X person held Y office. For example, Lugal Menun was the NC, or Arum was the scholar, or Imtum was the land surveyor. Notably, these professions correspond to those listed in the Lu E list. NC is entry number 5, scholar is entry number 2, and land surveyor is entry number 12. This suggests that, just as Lu E is a list of job titles by themselves, this names and professions text is a way to practice using these titles in context. Some of the names repeat, for example, Imtum is given as the name of both a land surveyor and a snake charmer. Likewise, three different names are given the title, The Fattener. It's not clear if this text reflects the real political situation at any given time. That is, this series of factual statements invites us to imagine a specific point in time when Abu Salabik, or maybe Kish, really did have an NC named Lugal Menun, a land surveyor named Imtum, three different fatteners, and so on. However, by the time we see this text, the names are apparently standard. If they ever represented a real situation, scribal standardization had frozen that situation in time before the fire period. More likely, the names are just arbitrary common names, picked at random to practice writing sentences, just as in any foreign language textbook today. Sometimes the text pairs a personal name with a place instead of a job title, as in Ur Zababa was from Adab. Most of these place names are in the north, Akshak and Sipar in the northern Alluvium, Subir in northern Mesopotamia, and Adab in the central Alluvium. Unug is in the south, and Arawa is in western or southwestern Iran. A few of these unidentified places also appear in the list of geographical names, another Kish tradition text that may list settlements ruled by the king of Kish. Some of the names in this text are obviously Sumerian, for example, Omar Ashgi. Some are clearly Semitic, like Imlik Il, which uses the same roots as Ilum Malik, which you saw earlier. Moving on to Animals B. Besides the archaic lexical text Animals A, this is the only lexical list of animals with more than one copy. The first entry is Am, meaning an aurochs or a wild bull. The next 50 lines list mostly domestic livestock, types of cattle, sheep, goats, donkeys, and so on. Then it lists wild animals, starting with charismatic megafauna, like elephants, lions, hyenas, and wolves, as well as two deer-like animals called lulim and shegbar, maybe types of gazelle or something. The word they use for elephant, bi lam lum, ends with the suffix for nouns in the nominative case in Semitic languages. This allows us to distinguish between words in the local language, which these appear to be, and words borrowed from a Semitic language into Sumerian and understood by these scribes as Sumerian words. Then, the list moves on to mythical creatures, including a human-faced bull, which shows up frequently in Sumerian art, and an Ushum Gal. The literal meaning of the latter Sumerian name means great dragon. Gal means great, which is fairly straightforward. Their word for dragon combines the word ush, meaning snake venom, with am, meaning wild bull, which we just saw earlier. Like the human-faced bull, the Sumerian Ushum Gal is a mythical hybrid, combining the fatal power of the snake with the untamed strength of the aurochs. The list ends with smaller animals, turtles, rodents, insects, and so on. You might wonder why it lists dragons in between wolves and turtles, so do I. Their word for mouse, chamun zilum, has the same Semitic suffix, um, 
that I just mentioned. Our last lexical text from the Kish tradition is Practical Vocabulary A. Like it says on the tin, this is a list of common words grouped by theme, which is a relatively common format of scribal school text. The section listing various musical instruments corresponds with the section of Lu E listing musicians. Since the same instruments appear in both lists, we can assume that they constituted a quote-unquote canonical ensemble of some sort, maybe in the Kingdom of Kish at the time. This is the only practical vocabulary list that we have multiple copies of from different sites. Namely, besides Abu Salabi, we have a copy from Ebla with a few interesting changes, including replacing Sumerian vocabulary with local Semitic words, like swapping out the Sumerian word for plum, shanur, for the local shaluru. They also replaced the Sumerian word for lapis lazuli, zagin, with the sign kur, meaning mountain, which they apparently used to represent their local synonym for lapis lazuli, which was uknu. The relevant entries in the list are plum-shaped lapis, lapis ore, lapis scepter, lapis sandal, and lapis comb. About 40% of the entries in this text also appear in a bilingual vocabulary list at Ebla, again indicating this was part of a unified body of knowledge, albeit with some regional variations. To change subjects entirely, Anne Eastham's 2009 paper is an analysis of bird skeletons found at Abu Salabik, mostly hunted birds, cooked, eaten, and found among fish and mammal bones. The landscape around Abu Salabik was characterized by, in her words, quote, saline marshes complemented by cultivated fields, open and accessible to wildfowl, areas of grassland, and some tree cover, with perhaps orchards or even vines in the cultivated areas, end quote. This provided a habitat not only for waterfowl, doves, and crows, but also the hawks who eat them, all of which appear in art from the period. As you might imagine, the most common types of birds were all waterfowl, mostly ducks and geese, but also cormorant, gull, and heron, all of which underscore the importance of the wetland environment as a daily source of food. Ducks and other migrating birds arrived in late autumn and winter. People would hunt them with nets, traps, cages, and decoys. Cylinder seals depict geese and swans in various wetland scenes. The single most common species of bird at Abu Salabik is the gray-lag goose, which menaces farmers by feeding on crop fields. It may have been captured in the winter, fattened in captivity, and then eaten later, as they were in Egypt at the time. The later Sumerian literary text about the heron and the turtle, which we haven't covered yet, includes the lines, quote, Please give us millet, and we shall deliver to you water birds, large and small, fattened with it, end quote. Various types of duck, like mallard, shell duck, pintail, and marbled teal, feed on invertebrates in and near the water, making them similarly easy to net. Ducks were apparently processed before they were cooked and served. The duck bones from layers of food refuse are almost entirely from their wings and breasts, with the rest of the body presumably discarded elsewhere, maybe where they were captured, maybe at a butcher shop instead of in the kitchen, who knows. Geese and marbled teal ducks were the two species most commonly eaten. The only terrestrial game bird that shows up is the Franklin, a kind of quail-like bird. It's shown up in earlier episodes of literature in lines like, The voice of the Franklin is the glory of the fields, or May the Franklins of the mountains wear carnelian beards. This species can live in meadows, orchards, and reed beds, eating grass, seeds, berries, and insects. Historically, it was so highly prized as a game bird that it was hunted to extinction in many places. Several species had apparently developed a commensal relationship with human settlements, including rock doves, the wild ancestor of domestic pigeons, and hooded crows. Both threatened crops, and the latter is, of course, not averse to eating carrion. One crow died in a human cemetery, maybe trying to eat a corpse, but more likely trying to scavenge the remains of a funeral feast. Most common, birds of prey, like eagles and kites, are absent from the faunal record at Abu Salabik. They probably knew enough to stay away from human settlements. In art at the time, vultures, and especially eagles, were associated with royal authority, an association familiar to modern Americans and students of ancient Rome, among other militaristic societies. We do have the complete skeleton of a goshawk. These birds roost near trees and other cover. Since they hunt in the wild by attacking flying waterfowl from above, they can be trained to hunt cranes and bustards. This specimen was buried with a human child by the feet of an adult. It may have been captured from the wild as a chick or even raised domestically. The close relationship between falconers and their birds would remain important through later periods of Mesopotamian history. The practice first appears in art around 2250 BCE during the Sargonic period and is first mentioned in literature in the 2nd millennium BCE. 
People would hunt with hawks in the Iraqi desert well into the 20th century CE. So that is that on birds. So like at Shurupak, administrative texts were distributed around Abu Salabik rather than being grouped at one specific building complex. This suggests that authority was distributed between several houses or at least different offices of the same authority. The buildings called the Eastern Houses produced two fragments of lexical texts and an administrative tablet concerned with lambs. A building designated House 6H provided much more information. This was a large building, 650 square meters, with several different types of text. Five administrative texts concerned with land and grain, a lexical text from the floor of a looted grave, a record of a house sale from the fill of that same grave, and an incantation tablet from a toilet drain. These administrative texts confirm the existence of the Shuku field system as at Archaic Ur. Large institutional households, usually temples or palaces, would allot certain amounts of farmland to officials, bureaucrats, and skilled workers, providing them with a steady source of food and possibly a modest surplus in reward for their service to the household, Shuku being Sumerian for subsistence. Texts from House 6H at Abu Salabik record Shuku fields for men or workmen, women or working women, potters, messengers, land registrars, scribes, farm managers, leather workers, and carpenters. The Sumerian words for all of these are Ngurush, Munus, Bahar, Mashkin, Sasug, Dubsar, Engar, Ashgab, and Nangar, respectively. Similarly, texts at a nearby area record allotments to farmers, scribes, men, and women, as well as Ugula-e, or household supervisors, or butlers. One text records the distribution of land to women, just women, along with the name of an Engar, or farm manager. This was presumably the official who was to administer their estate. Some older sources will translate Engar as farmer, but as we've seen, manual laborers doing farm work were referred to using the normal language of manual labor. And, you know, people working family farms outside the realm of the city would not be called farmer. They would just be listed by their name or just like, you know, grouped together with a couple other people and it's called, you know, 26 men or whatever. In general, during the third millennium, it's difficult to tell which large buildings are palaces and which are temples without text to let us know. By the fire period, we see several monumental building complexes with too many rooms to be private houses and with a different floor plan from the standard design of early dynastic temples. These buildings appear at Kish, Mari, Ebla, and of course Abu Salabik in the north, and at Eridu in the south. The 24th century, King Lugal Zagesi might have left a palace unfinished in Unug when he was defeated. This is the Stampflehm Gabauda. Stampflehm. This is the Stampflehm Gabauda, or rammed earth building. Most of these buildings have thick external walls, likely to support upper stories, and large square courtyards, scaled up versions of the courtyards found in most domestic houses. They also have evidence of craft production, including with wood, ivory, and semi-precious stones, likely for art such as the frieze at the palace at Kish. Also, whereas most cities are centered around their major temple complex, these new buildings are often farther away from the center of town. Some are likely originally set up on the other side of the river. So are these palaces? In my interview with Karar Sabah, he said the structure at Eridu was a temple complex to Enki, not a seat of secular power as such. So maybe we should focus on the north, since Abu Salabik, Kishmari, and Ebla were all part of the broad Semitic-speaking cultural area north of Sumer. So can we know whether this building at Abu Salabik was a palace, and who could it have belonged to? So this building at Abu Salabik appears during the fire period, after about 2600 BC. It was at least 50 meters square, with two parallel sets of outer walls. So like I said, this monumental building at Abu Salabik fits the pattern of these northern quote-unquote palaces. It's too big to be a private residence. It's not built like a temple. There's no evidence of religious worship like there are at contemporary temples. Also, like these other buildings, it's physically separate from the temples of the center of Abu Salabik. If this is a palace, we would naturally want to know who lived here. One text from this period at Abu Salabik records the allotment of three boor of land. That's a large unit of land. To a woman titled Nin, two boor to the god Shara, and two boor to the Ensi. So the Ensi and the Nin also appear in other texts. The most straightforward interpretation of this tablet is that it records land grants to the temples of the god Shara and to the local political leader and his wife, the Ensi and the Nin, or maybe to the local leader, the Ensi, and two temples, one of Shara and one of a goddess titled Nin. Nin is just the Sumerian word for lady. Here it may refer to Abu Salabik's quote-unquote first lady, that is the 
wife of the leader, or it may refer to a goddess, maybe Inanna, or maybe Misaba, as we'll talk about. As I mentioned, the word ensi is more complicated. The definition that will eventually become standard in Mesopotamia is that of a kind of governor or viceroy, the local official in charge of a city ruling in the name of a higher king or emperor. At least in Sumerian, the king of Kish called himself Lugal, literally great man, which unquestionably means king. Last episode, when someone called himself the Ensi of Kish, I took it to assume that Kish was subordinate to some other political power at the time, maybe nearby Akshak, as we talked about. However, in cities like Lagash, kings traditionally titled themselves Ensi, even under Eonatum, when Lagash was not only independent from a higher power, but likely itself the most powerful kingdom in Sumer. This tradition of kings of Lagash calling themselves Ensi may have originated under Kish's overlordship. I've mentioned the evidence for a king of Kish intervening in the boundary dispute with Uma, but by the 2400s BCE, the term Ensi indicated that their patron god, Ningirsu, was the real king of the kingdom of Lagash, and that the human king was merely his representative for petty earthly matters. Some texts at Abu Salabi refer to king's fields, that is, land belonging to the Lugal. Again, this may refer to the king of Abu Salabik, or the king of Kish, or maybe a god, like Shara, considered the real king of Abu Salabik. The question of exactly which Sumerian word they would have used to describe their leader may be irrelevant, given that a majority of the population apparently spoke Akkadian. Whatever he called himself, this building was likely the household of the leader of Abu Salabik, and his various rooms likely stored grain and administrative libraries, and housed workshops and industrial installations. So we have one last question to examine, which is, what city is this? Of the various cities named in Sumerian texts, which have yet to be securely identified with particular archaeological sites, the two most prominent in the northern alluvium are Eresh and Kesh with an E. Before excavations began at Abu Salabik, Danish academic Torkel Jakobsen guessed that the site would turn out to be Kesh with an E, which does appear in Kesh tradition text from Abu Salabik. Furthermore, the presence of Kesh with an E in the archaic seals at Ur will explain the scribal connection between Farah text here and earlier text at Ur. So, Abu Salabik might be Kesh with an E but I haven't mentioned yet what may turn out to be the most important piece of evidence, which is a tablet at Abu Salabik referring to the Lugal of Eresh. Eresh, of course, is a city, but Eresh is the Sumerian word for queen. Again, this Lugal of Eresh might be a god, or it may be the king of Kish, rather than a human leader based at Abu Salabik, but that's not the point. The point of this particular text is that sooner or later, administrative texts at any given city are likely to mention the name of the city they're administering. Of course, this is how academics figured out the ancient names of all the other Mesopotamian cities. You know, if you don't know the ancient name of a city, but all of them are concerned with the king of Lagash and the temples of Lagash and so on, you're probably in Lagash. So this isn't certain evidence that Abu Salabik is ancient Eresh, but we do know that there was a city called Eresh in the northern Alluvium, which is a longtime territory of the kingdom of Kish. And Abu Salabik is not only in the northern Alluvium, but literally downriver from Kish, you know, the next major city down the river. So Eresh was the home of the goddess Nisaba, patron god of scribes and scribe to the other gods in heaven. If this is Eresh, her temple complex may have been home to a particularly large scribal academy, which may explain the unusual concentration of scribal and literary texts. In the last episode, I talked about the Kish tradition, as if it were certain that this literary canon was developed physically inside the city of Kish. But of course, there's no direct evidence of that, since we have so few texts from Kish. What we do have are a whole lot of texts that show up first at Abu Salabik and later at Ebla, several of which happen to preserve at least a memory of rule by Kish. So these could have been standardized and canonized here at Eresh, in the Temple of Nisaba, and only later disseminated by the kingdom of Kish. And that is that for Abu Salabik. Let's read another story. Ninsuna brought grass, melted the frozen grass, and spread it. On a pad of lettuce until dawn they slept in Uru-Az. We're listening to Lugalbanda and Ninsuna, or Ninsumun. This is translated by Torkel Jakobsen in 1989. This is among the oldest mythological narratives found at Abu Salabik. It's about a marriage between the legendary figures Lugalbanda and Ninsuna, who are Gilgamesh's parents. Like other early bits, the writing here is abbreviated and hard to understand. So, Lugalbanda is a legendary king, known from the Unug cycle, which we read in season 2, that will be written 500 years after this point. So this is probably the middle of a longer story, 
The beginning of the text, as we have it, refers to, quote-unquote, him before naming Lugalbanda. Lugalbanda and Ninsuna appear to be already married when the story begins, and of course it ends right before introducing dialogue. So we really only have a chunk from the middle of this story. It begins with Ninsuna brewing beer. So, you know, performing a domestic activity, so we're probably at her house. She lives in Uru Oz, which is somewhere in southwestern Iran. Lugalbanda is there because he was sent by the N of Unu to collect tribute from the mountains. Just as Enmarkar sent his messenger to Arata in the Enmarkar myths, here Lugalbanda is carrying Enmarkar's message back to Unug. And then Torkald Jakobsen uses the word cherub to translate the Sumerian term lama, which is kind of like a guardian angel. In the Zami Temple Hymn Collection, Ninsun is also titled Lama. Cherub Ninsuna was lifting out baked beer bread confections. Cherub Ninsuna was very shrewd. She stayed awake and laid down at his feet. Wise Lugobanda passed the arm around Cherub Ninsuna. He could not resist kissing her on the eyes. He could not resist kissing her on the mouth. Also taught her much lovemaking. Okay. So apparently they weren't expected to consummate this marriage yet. Ninsuna was supposed to fall asleep with the rest of her family. But she stayed up late and let Lugalbanda in. We see a poetic euphemism for sex, which is he also taught her much lovemaking, as opposed to the standard stock phrase for sex in Sumerian literature, which is, quote, he plied the member in her, end quote. <laughs> yeah. Is that real? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Oh, horrible. Um, I don't like that. <laughs> like Nanurta, Lugalbanda has a talking weapon named Niri, possibly an axe. Lugalbanda was wise, took Niri in hand. Cherub Ninsuna said to Lugalbanda, To Anug, to the Yen, let me set out with you for the tablet of deliveries. So they go to Unug. Lugalbanda reports to his sovereign, who is not explicitly named as Enmerkar, but, but if we're fitting this into later tradition, this is Enmerkar. And he says that the gods are coming to visit, which is why Lugalbanda was sent to collect tribute in the mountains. He mentions a tablet of deliveries, which may be a record of tribute delivered from the mountains to Unug. Lugalbanda prostrated himself on the ground before the Yen. And the N said to Lugobanda, Let me look at what you've brought from the mountains. The Anunnaki are headed hither. Let me have them look at what you've brought from the mountains. The text doesn't actually describe what the tribute is. It may have been too obvious to narrate. But Jakobsen speculates that Lugobanda might not have had any tribute to offer. Maybe he might have spent it all on Ninsuda's bride price. Uh, there's no direct evidence for this, but it does answer some questions. Quoting Jakobsen here, quote, Why is Lugobanda in the mountains? How could he find the means to pay a bride price there? To what does the reference to a tablet of incoming deliveries allude? Why does the N expect him to have brought things from the mountains and ask to see them? Why are no such things mentioned elsewhere? Why does Lugalbanda fail to state his compliance with the N's request? And why is there supernatural intervention? We can think of no other simple solution that will account for all this. End quote. Lugalbanda's mom, who is his tutelary goddess, has died. But they raise her spirit, like the Witch of Endor in the Bible, or the very shades in the Odyssey. Both Ninsuna and the Axe pay homage to her ghost. Lugalbanda came out into the outer courtyard, neck-cutting Neri, noble Neri, reported to the spirit, and the goddess mother of Lugobanda came out of the hat. Cherub Ninsuna was quick, sprinkled holy water on the ground. Lugobanda shuddered. When she had sprinkled water on the ground for the spirit, the goddess mother of Lugobanda, she said, he has brought you away from the mountains and has slept with the wife. Mother-in-law, for me, a bride worthy of your son. Okay, okay, I see, I see, okay, sorry. What the hell? <laughs> it is a little weird to parse. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, like, I don't know, it sounds like some guy, like, brought her and then slept with her for him. <laughs> like, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Warm her for you, boss. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the goddess mother of Lugobanda, she said, he has brought you a wife from the mountains and has slept with a wife. Mother-in-law, for me, a bride worthy of your son. Decree issue, five males. 
So sprinkling holy water on the ground would have been a way to welcome an honored guest. Ninsuna is not afraid of the ghost. Instead, she asked for its help conceiving children. Traditionally, she had five boys and five girls, but the text is damaged. Noble Miri whispered to the spirit, In the outer courtyard, in the gate that brings myriads, let me take office. To Noble Miri, the spirit said, And it breaks off here. Unfortunately, we'll never know what Lugalbanda's mom's ghost said to his ex. Part of it. Uh, did you see that one, the one joke that was going around on the internet a couple months ago? Um, there was like a dog walks into a tavern. So a dog walks into a tavern and he says, it's so dark in here. I can't see a thing. Let me open this one. So uh, it was cited as just an example. It was like, here's a joke we can't understand. And I saw someone explain it. I don't know if it's like the correct explanation, but is the explanation I saw is the dog walks into a tavern. He can't see a thing because it's dark inside. It's bright outside. It's dark inside. So his eyes are closed. And then when he walks into a dark building, it takes his eyes a second to adjust. So he's like, I can't see a thing. Let me open this one. Let me open my oh. eye. So that's the one side of it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but also taverns would have been brothels. So it's like, I can't see a thing as in like, I don't know like which one are hot or not. So like, I can't see a thing as in, I don't, I don't, you know, like, I, I can't no. tell. Let me take this one at random. And I, I, I've heard it explained that let me open this one as like a sexual reference. Ew. Okay. <laughs> so, the dog? Well, it's a joke. It's a metaphor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The, the joke is real. The explanation is may or may not be real. Yeah. Interesting thinking about humor and like what would have been relevant to them, you know? Right. Well, the yeah. And like what is so obvious that it... Like, not only does it need to be explained, but it's just, like, implicit in the structure of a joke. Yeah. It's like, obviously, he's going to, he's going to drink, drink a beer and get laid. Like, that's yeah. clear. <laughs> <laughs>